The time is now. Volume 6, Episode 113, This is Employment Law Now. I am your host, Mike Schmidt, and also the Vice Chair of the Labor and Employment Department here at Cozen O'Connor. We have a terrific and exciting episode for everybody today. Very often, I like to highlight certain developments uh, in the states around the country. Most of the time, for obvious reasons, Uh, I really rely and refer mostly to federal law, national-ish kinds of developments uh, so that that can appeal to most, uh, if not all, of the listeners. But I do like to highlight certain developments in certain states uh, on various occasions, not just for the benefit of those who have employees or operations in that state, but in cases like this when the development is very much a bellwether trend for other locations. And such is the case with Illinois and such is the case with the issue of equal pay. So I wanna welcome a tremendous panel who for some reason uh, has agreed to join me on this episode and talk about a rather significant piece of legislation in the great state of Illinois. Uh, I wanna start with uh, Jason Keller who is the Assistant Director of the Illinois Department of Labor. Uh, Assistant Director Keller has been with the Department of Labor for about two and a half years in this role. Before that, he has spent approximately 15 years with the AFL-CIO advocating for workers' rights. I also have with me Jeremy Glenn, who is uh, not a first-timer on this podcast. He is and still is a great partner of mine here at Cozen O'Connor in our Labor and Employment Department. He is also known by thousands as the office managing partner in our Chicago office, uh, representing employers across the board, union, non-union, everything having to do with employer-employee issues. And lastly, but certainly not least, we are very pleased to have with us, as a first time this time, Sydney Holman, who is a principal of the Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, also based in Chicago. Sydney has managed a team of liaisons across 27 state agencies and has been involved with reviewing and analyzing legislation on a host of topics. Sydney has most recently uh, worked with Illinois Governor Pritzker as the Deputy Director of Legislative Affairs and House Liaison of Legislative Affairs. Uh, I am now dwarfed in impressiveness by these panelists that have joined me today. So thank you all for being here. And uh, so we're going to be talking about uh, equal pay, an issue that, as I said at the beginning, is one that we're seeing get a lot of news and a lot of attention around the country. And one of the best places to start that discussion right now, I think, is in Illinois. And I want to start at the 30,000 foot level and give a little context to this Illinois development before we uh, get into the weeds of this legislation with our great panel. 
Um, Jeremy, let me ask you first. Is, is this a bellwether moment in Illinois or is this part of a larger call to action around the country when it comes to equal pay and more generally to gender equity issues? Mike, it is certainly a very unique statute in that while many states have Equal Pay Act statutes that mirror in some fashion the federal law, Illinois is the first to say to employers who have at least 100 employees in the state, we want you to apply for an equal pay registration certificate, meaning you will certify to the State Department of Labor and you will provide wage information that indicates you are paying people on average the same, regardless of their gender or their race. So that is very unique. Could it be picked up by other states? I guess time will tell. And that's a great tease. That's a great tease. Please don't turn the episode off right now because we're going to get into the substantive weeds in a few moments. Staying with this sort of 30,000 foot level context, uh, Sydney, I want to go to you uh, and talk about the process by which this thing got passed in Illinois. Was this a long, drawn-out battle to get this law passed? Give us a little bit of context to, uh, as to how we got where we are. Uh, yes. Um, so for the Equal Pay Act certificates, um, this was passed by the Black Caucus uh, last January of 2021. Uh, the bill had been filed a few times before, but hadn't really gained any traction. Um, so I, but I do think all stakeholders supported the idea and the intention of equity across, you know, all racial and gender lines. Um, I think people just were not on the same page on the implementation process and how that would work for businesses and for the agencies. So I think that's kind of where we had to do a lot more meetings, a lot more revisions, a lot more drafts. So that's kind of where like the back and forth happened. Um, and so with that, we passed the underlying law and then we passed a trailer bill about five months later with, you know, recommendations from the, you know, Illinois, you know, Chamber of Commerce, from um, Department of Labor, just to just kind of streamline it, you know, from a business perspective, you know, implementation perspective, and just really trying to make sure that we're looking at all of the different factors here, you know, as far as like, not just race and gender, but, you know, education levels, you know, location, I think all of those things definitely play a role for a company when they, you know, do create those compensation laws. So, um, but I do expect, you know, more conversations on it and how we can streamline it, tighten it, and just hopefully we can use this next year and a half just to kind of, you know, get feedback from different, you know, stakeholders and entities and see what we have there. Is this been a bipartisan effort or has this been led by one particular you know, side of the aisle? Um, so this is really the uh, Illinois Black Caucus. Uh, all of those members are Democratic members of both the House and the Senate. Uh, so it was definitely championed by the Democratic Caucus. However, I will say I do think um, there is understanding and, you know, desire to try to close the wage gap among people of color and um, among gender roles. Very interesting. Have there been challenges to the uh, to the legislation? Do we expect challenges to the legislation? Um, so I think because the legislation misses in effect uh, this past year, we're not really fully seeing a whole lot of challenges yet. But I think as things happen, we'll get a little bit more feedback from different businesses all over the state who will tell in other local area chamber of commerces and their local effect, you know, elected officials on, you know, potential, ch you know, changes that may happen. So there has not really been any, any challenges per se, but um, we do expect to see some, you know, things on the horizon. Interesting. Um, Assistant Director uh, Keller, 
uh, love to turn this to you. And before we, again, get into the heart of the equal pay requirements in this legislation, is equal pay an issue that has been on the radar of your department even before all of this? I would say certainly yes. Um, I can certainly uh, tell a little bit of a backstory because when I started in the state Senate as a staff person uh, back in uh, 2003, this was actually uh, – setting this act up was the first bill that I worked on. Um, and so it's very personal to me. And I'll state that uh, State Senator Barack Obama also voted for uh, the enacting of this uh, law as well. So um, it, it is personal. It's something that we monitor uh, very closely and we do receive complaints on. Um, it was changed uh, or amended, uh, I want to say back in 2009-10 to include um, some requirements that employers not discriminate uh, against employees based upon uh, African-American status as well. So we monitor that as well as uh, gender inequity um, in, in around the state. Is this modeled after some uh, other jurisdiction or is this really uh, we're reinventing the wheel or inventing the wheel, I should say, in Illinois? I want to I, I, I want to say that California had a law when we did it in 2003, um, but I'd have to look at my notes, quite honestly, uh, to look back at that. Uh, so it is we did break some fresh ground, certainly in the Midwest in, in enacting this. Great. So let's get into uh, the law a little bit. Uh, Jeremy, let's go to you. We talk about um, coverage and deadlines. What are the effective dates and what are the deadlines that are involved with this law? Great launching point. Okay, so for employers in Illinois who have 100 or more employees in Illinois, March 24th of this year is the first date of note. On that date... March 24th, I didn't mean to cut you off, so because I know people listen to this podcast for years and years in, in, the, uh, in the vault, we're talking March 24th, 2022 is the first date. <laughs> Correct. Good clarification. March 24th of 2022, that will begin the first round of reporting time periods for the first group of employers who received notice from the Illinois Department of Labor to apply for the Equal Pay Certificate. We understand that approximately 625 letters have gone out notifying that first tranche of employers that their deadline will be 120 days after March 24th, 2022. So approximately four months later, which puts us in mid-July of 2022. And what those employers will be asked to do is to, A, submit their EEO-1 statement, B, submit wage data and the location and the demographic information about their employees in Illinois, not just 100, but all of the Illinois employees, assuming it's more than 100, and then sign a certificate by an officer or an agent or an attorney of the company that indicates they've examined their wage data and that the average pay for women and minorities is not less than the average pay for non-female and non-minority employees, taking into account the non-discriminatory factors that Sydney mentioned, like experience in the job, education, particular skills or training, the location, i.e. which of the 101 counties in Illinois do they work. So the employer will certify that compliance, submit its wage data. And then within 45 days or so, 
We know that the hardworking men and women at the Department of Labor will do their best. 45 days is the goal to respond with either issuing a certificate or following up with a request for corrected or additional information. Now, issuing the certificate, Mike, doesn't mean the department is blessing the compliance of the employer. It simply means they've met the steps to properly apply for the certificate. Great. And so I want to uh, parse out some of what you said, um, because on the one hand, it seems simple, but, you know, like everything else, there are a lot of moving parts to this. When you're talking about the coverage and you mentioned at the beginning something about 100 employees with Illinois. So this is a large employer piece of legislation. It only applies to uh, Illinois employers with 100 employees. You're close, but again, the, the details are important. So it could be a company that's headquartered in Tallahassee, Florida, but has a location in Naperville, Illinois with 105 employees. If that's the case, then that Tallahassee employer needs to follow the certificate application process. Similarly, it may be an Illinois employer with a thousand employees spread across the United States. But if a hundred or more of them are in Illinois, then that employer will be covered by these Equal Pay Act requirements. All right, so let me see either how smart I am or how well I'm following you. If you've got an employer that's based in Illinois and they've got a thousand employees around the country, only 10 of whom are in Illinois, I'm suggesting that it does not apply to that employer. Is that correct? That is correct. Survey says that is correct. <laughs> All right. And so, I'm yes. Please to note there is there's agreement among all three panelists on that point. <laughs> all right. Well, I just threw myself a softball, so that was uh, that was easy. So the bottom line, the takeaway is you're counting the number of employees actually in Illinois, correct? That's correct. But of course, here's another detail we're going to find out more about, and that is what about remote working employees? Exactly. For example. During the pandemic, we know employees have moved across state lines for personal reasons, but continue to work for the same employer. Here in the great Chicagoland area, for example, if you move just north to Wisconsin or just east to Indiana, you may not physically report to a workplace in Illinois. But I would suggest to our listeners that if that employee still takes direction from the Illinois location, receives work assignments, feedback, review, then I would err on the side of caution of including that person. I'd be very interested um, in the other's thoughts on that. But I think unless and until the individual has left the state without an intent to return, the more conservative view would be to continue to count them as an Illinois employee. I would, this is Jason Keller, and I would definitely concur uh, with what Jeremy just said, is that uh, if they are a remote working employee, uh, but based in Illinois or take direction from Illinois, then we will consider them an Illinois employee. Um, I, I do, if I may, would like to revisit the uh, timeline um, discussion, though. Um, some new developments have come to our attention, and that is that um, the employers that are subject to this act who are going to file an EEO-1 report. Um, we've discovered that the time frame to file those reports with the EEOC, um, that window of time won't open until April 
12th of this year. And so we have had to adjust our time frame a little bit. We are actually, while the act says that the window of time, the two-year window of time opens up on March 24th, our portal won't be open until April 12th uh, when those employers can file the EEO one. The, the first registration date that we have sent out is, is uh, May 24th. Um, just for, for clarification, um, we're trying to fit in um, eight quarters, uh, essentially, of different employers to register. And so we had to kind of squeeze them into that two-year time period. So I just wanted to bring that up. Perfect. Very helpful. Thank you. Um, and and to, to stay once more on this uh, coverage question, what if the company does not have 100 employees already as of these deadline windows you're talking about, um, but at some point um, does have 100 employees later on? Does that, person, does that company become uh, obligated to meet certain requirements? Yes. What we, I'm sorry, I don't know if that was to me, Jason, or Jeremy. Assistant Director Keller, yeah. please. How we're going to handle that is that, yes, we are going to continually have a link up for businesses to provide their contact information to us. If uh, they hit that 100 employee threshold, then we would ask that they provide contact information to us so that we can reach out to them. Okay. And, um, and in fact, the, the statute, Mike, the statute's clear on that as well. I believe it says no later than January 1st of the year in which you hit the 100 employee mark. So that may be a few days if it's Christmas hiring, or that may be a longer period of time if it's in the fall or summer. And I want to add to that point, the Department of Labor has specifically asked for accurate contact information, because when the notice goes out to an employer, regardless of whether it goes to a valid email address or a former employee, the company is on notice. So we are encouraging all of our clients Take advantage of the form that's on the Illinois Department of Labor website to make sure the department has accurate and correct contact information. So this is not noticed by receipt. This is noticed by delivery. Once this goes out by the Department of Labor, it's assumed and held to be in constitute notice, correct? Correct. And you, so you mentioned when we were going through the, the separate requirements here, you mentioned the EEO-1 statement. So is that literally the EEO-1 statement that is required by the EEOC? Is that something state-specific that has to be submitted? What is that that needs to be submitted? It is literally the EEO-1 report. Okay. And when we're talking about wage data and demographic information, is that the same information that large employers similarly have to file to comply with federal law, or is there any uh, nuance in uh, Illinois? That is uh, slightly different information. Uh, the way that we set that up is that uh, we wanted to keep it as simple as possible in just a few fields. We've, we have a template out on our website for the uh, information that we are asking. It's uh, employer name, uh, first name of the employee, uh, and last name, total wages paid in the calendar year, the gender, excuse me, the gender of the employee, the race of the employee, ethnicity. Um, but we also have a law that we can go back and ask for additional information. And we specifically put that in the law so that as we discover additional um, bits of information that we may need to make sure we can enforce this law, that we can just ask employers for it. 
And I am picture. Yeah, go ahead, Jeremy. You want to add something? The categories will seem familiar, Mike. Um, employers who do reporting will recognize the six race categories, the two ethnicity categories, and also the job classification categories that are frequently used on a federal reporting basis. And I am literally hearing in my head the thousands of listeners who are on the train, in their car, on the treadmill, really begging me to ask the question, where do I find this form? Where do I go if I want instructions on what I have to submit? What would that website or what would that location be where people can find or download what they need to do? So we have on our website, um, and you can pretty much, I, I would just encourage you to Google Illinois Department of Labor, but uh, under the laws and rules tab that we have on our website, you would just click that and then find the Equal Pay Act of 2003 link. And it is on that page. Uh, we have uh, the press release that we have put out m multiple times, uh, and that contains the link to provide contact information to us and then also the template form uh, that we would like employers to use. That's perfect, thank you. And if, if you really wanna make it even easier for yourself, not that that wasn't uh, easy sounding, please feel free to email me at Cozen O'Connor or email Jeremy Glenn or Sydney Holman at uh, Cozen O'Connor. We're happy to provide you a link and uh, whatever needs to be submitted. Uh, so going back, Jeremy, to this list of requirements under the legislation, the one that really stood out to me the most was the one that you mentioned at the end of the signed certificate by an officer or agent. The way you described it makes it sound as, this, as if this is not just a pro forma signature by anyone at the company. There really is something important that they are certifying by being the one to sign this. Is that right? That is exactly right. Yes. And, and we know at sophisticated clients. There are a team of people who need to be involved with this. But at the end of the day, there will be one signature on the application for the equal pay certificate. And that signature will indicate that the company certifies it is compliant with the Illinois Equal Pay Act, the Federal Equal Pay Act, the Illinois Human Rights Act, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The company will explain how it goes about setting compensation for its employees. And it will certify that the average compensation for females and minorities is not below the average compensation for males and non-minority employees, taking into account those factors we discussed before. So it's an obligation to sign your name that should not be taken lightly. And so just to play that out a little bit, um, what level of authority are we requiring the signature to have? In other words, if I am named my title, uh, I am signing this document, is it enough that I consulted with others in the organization who told me the accuracy of what you just described? Or is this something that I personally, because I am signing, I actually have to review the documents. I have to firsthand you know, understand what it is that I am attesting to. That's a great question. And before I offer advice, I'm interested on Assistant Director Keller's thoughts on that sort of personal and knowing basis. And then I can share some thoughts on what that might mean. Absolutely. I'm happy to help. So the law states for the compliance statement that the business has to submit a statement signed by a corporate officer 
legal counsel or authorized agent of the business. And so the intent of the General Assembly and the governor was someone with authority in the business has to sign this, has to review it and sign off on it. Okay. Um, Will the general, I know one of the things that uh, companies are always concerned about when they are submitting information to a government agency or really to anyone, will the general public be able to access this information through a freedom of information request or will individuals be able to access this if they're in litigation? That's a great question. And I'll start, Mike, this is Jeremy, and then Sydney may have some thoughts on how that was part of the trailer bill discussions. Um, Certainly individualized data a demographic wager otherwise is not subject to Freedom of Information Act disclosure, but aggregated data will be. So aggregated data, perhaps about the average sales worker compensation paid in DuPage County, that, that could be obtained through a FOIA request. But individualized data will not be available either to the general public or to an individual employee who asks. Oh, thank you, Jeremy. I'd just like to piggyback on that really quick. Um, during the trailer bill discussions, that was obviously brought up by the governor's office legal team and the Department of Labor legal team. Obviously, you know, we want to be transparent, but we also want to protect individuals. For example, if a woman is, you know, going to interview for a new job and is trying to, you know, obtain a higher salary, that prospective employer could go back and look at her previous salary and decide to use that against her in negotiation discussion. So we were trying to just have a happy medium of, you know, providing aggregate data that's needed, you know, to kind of assess where we are and where we need to go, but also understanding that it may be a barrier for advancements for women and people of color. Uh, so that was, um, we were pleased to see agreement on that part and uh, hope that there are no pitfalls with that. Great. There have to be, I'm assuming, penalties for failing to comply with all these requirements. How onerous are they? What are they? Another great topic, the penalty discussion, the way it began and the way it ended. And by the way, you're now making me self-conscious because the last three questions you said were great questions. I am concerned that all of the questions before that were not great questions. (laughs) I, I love the impromptu nature. You really do think on your feet very, very well. I, so the I penalty. To, I happen to be sitting down at the moment, but in any event, go ahead, Jeremy. I'm sorry to interrupt you. The penalty for not complying or submitting false information is $10,000. The statute itself has additional penalties based on size of employer and the particular violation. But as I read it, the failure to apply for this certificate for the failure to correct a deficiency or submitting false information subjects the employer to a $10,000 civil penalty. That too was a compromise, wasn't it, Sydney, in the legislative discussions of the past 12 months? Uh, Yes, it was also a compromise. And the reason for that was, for example, I'll just use an example. Um, During the pandemic, you had a lot of companies that ended up merging. And so they became over the 100 employee threshold and that could have been in the middle of the year so they would you know unknowingly be violating something simply because they were just specifically unaware and at the time they just weren't in the business and to receive notification um and second obviously the underlying of one percent of total you know global profit you know profits is they're very hard to nail down specifically um if you're doing something overseas uh so we 
definitely try to make it a little bit more narrow and just a little bit more applicable for um, businesses, uh, especially for ones who may be new just coming into this. So they won't be heavily penalized specifically because they were unaware of the logistics of, of, of the law. As she pointed out, the original bill said the penalty was 1% of gross profits for the employer. Wow. And I'm, I'm sure there were discussions about what happens to the malfeasant employer who didn't make a profit? Do they escape penalties altogether? Well, so anyway, the, yeah, the clarity now is to be applauded. It's a very clear $10,000 civil penalty. So on that front, you know, how close are we to essentially a strict liability uh, statute here? Are, are there good faith defenses? Is there otherwise any ability to cure a deficient submission where is the line here for employers? Any of you? Jason? As the enforcement mechanism, yeah, um, I, there is an opportunity to cure uh, any uh, issues with their application. Uh, I would always state, and we always do state um, when we do public uh, in engagements, that we are not a punitive agency, that we are uh, – compliance first. And so we will always work with an employer and employee to try to educate them into coming into compliance with our laws. And so, yes, we do off the, the law does stipulate that employers do get an opportunity to cure any mistakes on their application. So I want to uh, piggyback on that, uh, which was a great bridge, um, Assistant Director Keller, from an enforcement standpoint, what is the Department of Labor's role in all of this? And, and what exactly is enforcement going to look like? Will your department go out, for example, and affirmatively investigate certain industries or companies? Or is the department expected to rely instead on receiving a complaint first before taking any action? What's enforcement going to look like? Well, the, the first hurdle that we had to really overcome was getting uh, contact information for the employers that are subject to this act in Illinois. Uh, many people think that we have some sort of registry within our Department of Employers, and that, that simply wasn't the case. Uh, and it wasn't easy to get a hold of. Um, and so we, we were able to get a hold of, uh, you know, quite a few, quite a number of employers uh, that are subject to the act and get uh, contact information. So the, the, those notices that went out, you know, we really just got their contact information. That's the first step of enforcement is notification. Uh, and then second step right now, and I'm being long-winded, so I apologize, but second step for us is to uh, offer training. Um, and so we have set up, uh, at least for the first flight of employers, we've set up four training sessions that employers can attend so that we can walk them through what the portal will look like, uh, what the um, template will look like that they'll be filling out. And um, our first one was held February 7th. I think we had just over 100 employers attend, and we have three more in this first quarter. Uh, to the question, are we going to go out and um, not prosecute, but enforce the act? Um, I think we are uh, developing that ability within our tech team so that uh, our, our portal will be able to compare wages and notice any um, disparities when they do pop up when businesses submit that data. Um, again, 
we're not going to be an overly punitive uh, agency. We will certainly reach out and see if uh, that uh, disparity can be corrected first before going after anyone. Can employers expect to see any regulations issued by the department or even any guidance or FAQs? Yes. Uh, so we are developing, at least in Illinois, we call them rules. Uh, and that will be the set of guidelines that the department uses to enforce the act and uh, interpret the act. We anticipate, ha we're hoping to have those filed by the March 24th uh, time period when this window opens up as the statute dictates. Um, we anticipate also getting a lot of feedback. So the public uh, will get an opportunity to comment on those rules. Uh, before they're put in place. And so we anticipate receiving nationwide attention on those rules and getting quite a few uh, comments and suggestions, if you will. Um, and so that process will be ongoing. Uh, what was the, I'm sorry, this, the latter part of your question? Was, uh, yeah, whether we're going to be any kind of FAQs or, or anything on, the, on these issues. Yep. So that's, I appreciate that. The to that part, um, as we're doing training sessions, um, we actually mute everyone on the training session and they have to submit their uh, questions in the chat. And so what we do is we essentially take those questions from the chat and keep them so that we can develop FAQs at a later date and we will be posting those on uh, our website as well. That's great. And, and you've mentioned a couple of times, which is always a great thing when we talk about uh, government agencies, and, and I ask this question every time I'm uh, honored to have a government official on the podcast, uh, whichever side of the employment aisle you're on, the employee, the employer, I think either side probably thinks that the agency is geared toward the other side. But there's so much that these agencies do when it comes to public outreach and employer outreach. And you touched on that. And I'd love to hear a little bit more from you in terms of what the uh, Illinois Department of Labor does from an outreach standpoint to give an opportunity to employers, businesses, uh, and all stakeholders, really, an opportunity to be in compliance with what their obligations are. So I will state um, for the public record that we wouldn't be uh, in a position we're in and as successful with this law uh, to this point without a partnership with the uh, business community. Uh, that's the Illinois Manufacturers Association, the Illinois Retail Merchants Association, and the Illinois Chamber. There may have been other organizations behind the scene, behind them that I, I didn't work with, but we held numerous meetings in developing the language for this law. And, uh, you know, we both had a, we all had a common goal and we worked towards that. Uh, and I think something good came of that. Um, to that end, we continue to work with them um, and share what we can with uh, the questions that we're getting, the, the rules and regulations that we're setting up. Uh, it's been a great partnership. And I, I do want to emphasize that because I think uh, a lot of times in the news, uh, you hear of, you know, no one's working together. There's no bipartisanship. Um, I have a very good working relationship with the business community and I have a very good working relationship with the labor community. So uh, people do work together to uh, find and achieve common goals. You're right. That is uh, nice to hear, given all the news that we do hear to the contrary every day, it seems. Jeremy, do individuals have a private cause of action to be able to sue for violations of this law in Illinois? The Equal Pay Act does have a private cause of action for wage discrimination, yes. 
but I don't believe there's a private cause of action for failing to apply for this registration certificate. And Assistant Director Keller, is there any um, thing that employers, businesses should be thinking about when it comes to whistleblowing or retaliation? Is there a component of that when it comes to these equal pay issues? Um, that's a good, I don't think there's anything too worrisome within the law to, um, for employers to be concerned about. Most of the data that they're submitting to us is highly protected and we can only issue reports that are in aggregate data. Um, I think uh, Jeremy and Cindy, or excuse me, Sydney pointed out earlier that um, certain employees can request the data from us, but it's very narrow and it has to be within their job classification. So um, I don't see any real problems with the whistleblower issue. Great. And, and before, as we wrap this up, and, and again, I really appreciate the time all of you are giving uh, to educate all of us on uh, such an important piece of legislation. Before we get to some takeaways and what employers should be doing right now, Sydney, I want to turn to you. Is there any discussion? Has there been any discussion about potential other amendments or changes down the road to any of this? Uh, or, or is what we have what we're going to have? Um, so I think what you have right now is what we're going to have for the the time being. Um, but I think, you know, as Jason said, as they kind of start, you know, going through the quarters and, you know, going through the motions, um, as they start, you know, the whole rules process, I think if there are things that need to be, you know, resolved via legislation, I think, you know, we can definitely have the conversation with the sponsors and business community as well. So, um, but right now it is what we're going to be working with right um, for right now. Jeremy, big question. What should employers be doing right now? And that's always your focus with the Employment Law Now podcast. <laughs> so there are there are two or three important things I think employers should be doing now. First is get familiar with the information you'll need to submit. The, the template spreadsheet is on the Illinois Department of Labor website. You can see the columns and the data that's requested. Make sure your HRIS system can be queried to pull that data. If it's not, then start now with the process on how to collect that data. Second, look at the certification requirements and think about how you're going to describe the way that compensation is set in your organization. And if there's not a way to articulate that now, it's time to plan for how we're going to articulate that. And I would also highly encourage companies to think about conducting a pay equity audit. Take into account the compensation that's paid and all the factors that go into determining those differences so that you know what your data shows before it's time to submit it to the Illinois Department of Labor. Those kind of pay equity audits can be very valuable and, and they can reveal discrepancies that an employer had no idea existed. It's time to work with legal counsel to conduct the audit, and then if it's appropriate to make changes, do so. Because it's always easier for our clients to make changes proactively rather than wait for a government agency or a plaintiff's lawyer to require that they do so. Yeah, no question. It's not just about getting it right for the submissions. It's good for to be proactive, you know, to avoid perhaps, minimize perhaps uh, eventual litigation. And at the end of the day, it's probably good for morale and doing the right thing, making sure that you are uh, on top of these equity issues 
whether it's race-based, gender-based, and you know uh, other demographics, you're just doing the right thing for your workforce. No, I'm 100% agree. agree. No, I just like to just piggyback a little bit. Um, as Jeremy says, is doing those um, pay audits in advance. I also would suggest companies maybe working with their HR or if they have any diversity, equity, or inclusion leadership in their firm to figure out ways to, you know, maybe decrease the wage gap, specifically, for example, a lot of black and brown individuals are first generation. So a lot of them are just really just trying to navigate the professional world and just not quite there yet. So maybe work on, you know, investment programs to make sure that you are equipping black and brown and women leadership to kind of be promoted so they can receive those higher uh, wages. So I think there's also not just opportunity for, you know, the logistical piece, but I think there's opportunity to be proactive with the programming to ensure that you have a trajectory for minorities to receive those equitable wages. That's another part of it. Um, that's also applicable for uh, companies that are located kind of outside of Cook and the Collar counties. So, and, you know, you do see in other parts of Central and Southern Illinois, there's just going to be a difference between minority um, employees versus white employees. So they can also kind of work on programming and recruitment as well to just kind of get those numbers there. So I definitely, you know, definitely take Jeremy's advice, but definitely be proactive and just figuring out a way to make this, you know, a normal thing of recruitment, of training, of investment and um you know equal compensation as well oh thank you Cindy. that's a great point as well uh and i want to give you assistant director keller uh the last word here before we sign off any takeaways for employers uh from the department's perspective i just want to say uh thank you to all of you for the opportunity to uh, appear on this podcast uh, and I do want to say thank you uh, really for that last question and, and the comments by uh, Jeremy and Sydney. Uh, just preparation is key um, and just thinking ahead is key. Uh, so I really appreciate those thoughts. Uh, I, I do want to make sure if, if uh, because this is a two-year process for the department that some businesses may provide their contact information to us or may have already, and they may not hear from us for a year or more. Um, we do ask for uh, some patience uh, as we go through this. We're still kind of learning a little bit ourselves, but uh, we will reach out to you. We will communicate when it's your time to register. So uh, we would just appreciate your patience as well. That's terrific. I, I can't thank the three of you enough. Uh, this is a fascinating issue uh, and an even more fascinating discussion today. Um, not just for those who are in Illinois or who have 100 or more employees in Illinois, um, but I think it's an important issue because we're seeing it around the country. And uh, if it has not gotten to your jurisdiction yet, you can be sure that it will at some point. So um, it's really important uh, wherever you are to at least be thinking about this stuff, be proactive. It's not only complying with the law, it's doing the right thing in most cases as well. Um, Assistant Director of the Illinois Department of Labor, Jason Keller, uh, my partner at Cozen O'Connor in our Labor and Employment Department, and the Office Managing Partner in Chicago, Jeremy Glenn, and also our Principal of Cozen O'Connor's Public Strategies, Sidney Holman. Thank you all so much for joining this uh, discussion today. It's been great to be with you. Take care, everyone. Thank Thanks you. For an honor. 
Well, that really was fascinating, as I said. I hope it was helpful to you. It's really good to take stock of what's going on in various jurisdictions around the country. Uh, we will continue to keep you updated on trends and significant developments in the world of labor and employment law and human resources. Until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive.